Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking with the historian and regular guest Sarah Churchwell as part of our audit of Four Years of Trump. How have America's political institutions stood up to the Trump stress test? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. So Sarah, we're trying to do these things without second guessing whether it's four years or eight years, though we may not be able to resist that temptation. But uh, this is a sort of audit of the first or maybe the only four years of a Trump presidency, but it's been a long four years and there's quite a lot to reflect on. And we've talked, you and I, on this podcast at various points through this time, but we've never really just straightforwardly faced up to what the hell has been going on. So let's do that now. So one way to think about this is that all sorts of the founding and organizing institutions of American political life have been put under quite a lot of stress by Trump's presidency. So we can go through a few of them and see which ones take our fancy. So maybe if we start with the Constitution, the big one, um, which was, it was many things to many people, but it was partly designed to guard against certain forms of demagoguery and certain forms of at least the possibility of populist majoritarian rule. Well, Trump's not a majoritarian because the majority of people never voted for him, but he is a demagogue. Do you think that he has really stress tested the Constitution? Because there is another view, which is, although it's been a pretty frenetic and unnerving four years, he hasn't done much. He said a lot. He hasn't done much. Well, I think... I think there is a case to be made for both of those positions. And I think that's why we find ourselves in this moment right now in the run-up to the election of such profound uncertainty, because that's exactly the question is, um, how far is all of this going to go? And will it turn out just to have been talk? But we will only know that once certain institutions actually withstand the stress test. So it's like we're exactly at the point where the institutions are either going to hold or give out and we're not so it's, at the it's end It's almost of the wrong the point yet. for me to be asking yeah, you this question. Exactly. You know, I mean, it really is a post, it's, it's really a post-election question in, in yeah. that sense, right? That's what we'll know. I mean, you know, the, the worry of him refusing to commit to a peaceful transfer of power is very, very real. What happens then? And to what degree is the GOP that has been propping him up going to continue to do that? To what degree, if it were to be thrown to the Supreme Court, which is a very big if and one that we should discuss because it's getting tossed around a lot and Trump wants it to be tossed around. So we should clarify all of that. But just at the top, if it were in this extreme hypothetical to get tossed to the Supreme Court, what would this particular Supreme Court do? And how might Amy Coney Barrett change that outcome, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are all of these unknowns and all of these kinds of algorithmic questions that we're all playing out. 
I think to, to answer your first question bluntly, how stress tested have the institutions been? I mean, I think they've been tested pretty near their limits. And, you know, I think one of the first things that a Biden presidency and a Democrat controlled Senate should such an eventuality come about in January 2021, absolutely one of the first things that they need to do is to, you know, do some really serious reforms of, of the democracy and very clear limitations on presidential power and take a lot of the processes and expectations that were norms and tighten them. I mean, I'm not usually a fan of turning everything into laws, but clearly there needs to be some strengthening of many of these systems that we took for granted nobody would exploit or try to overturn. And we've seen what happens when somebody's in power who is absolutely unscrupulous and, and prepared to break any rules, ignore any rules, declare that the rules don't exist, declare that the rules never existed, declare that the rules don't apply to him, declare that, you know, and, and a party who's backing him up. So my stress test is, is not over and my stress levels are very high. And I'm by no means confident that we're out of the woods. So on that question of the limitations of presidential power, so Trump has definitely blown out of the water all of the supposed conventions or constraints around presidential behavior. I think there's no question about that. He has done things most days that in the past, certainly in, in living memory, would have seemed impossible for a president. But then power is in some ways something else. Power has to be measured not just by what is said, but by what is done, but also by the range of people who can be either co-opted or coerced into the project. And America's political institutions are still recognizably intact in the sense that there are some of those limitations that will come onto the Supreme Court in a bit. But Congress, and it's not just Trump, where presidents have chafed against this, sought to enhance executive authority and executive power precisely because it is so frustrating trying to do things. When you look at the Trump presidency as a kind of snapshot of presidential power as it has evolved in the modern age. Do you see the, the limits of presidential power or do you see someone who has shown that those limits are themselves very vulnerable? Because I'm, I'm really torn on that question. I think in some ways he has been constrained. His behavior gets more and more outlandish as the constraints on his power are more visible. Yeah, I think that's true to an important extent, but I don't think it's a binary. I think both of those things can kind of be simultaneously true in that we've seen, certainly since 9-11 and really, you know, probably since the Nixon presidency, the, you know, increasing power of what's known as the, you know, the executive presidency, right? So this consolidation of power, which really accelerated under George W. Bush, and then accelerated again under Obama. And it's important to recognize that. I mean, I've I've listened to some interesting lectures from presidential historians, and I should say um, to your listeners that I'm not a presidential historian, but I'm trying to learn. And I've listened to some interesting lectures about the executive presidency that have argued that, that it's so structural now that if you were president, even if you didn't want to have a strong executive presidency, that it's almost this kind of fait accompli that the system takes you with it. And certainly Obama strengthened the executive presidency. There's no question question that he did. I think for me, the question about Trump and his relationship to power and, and the reality of his power, the thing is, is that it circles around this question of incompetence. So what we get is a lot of arguments saying that he's not really authoritarian or he's not really fascist, to use that very loaded word that we've debated before, that he's not really that because authoritarians are competent. 
And so by definition, you know, strongman has to be strong and it can't be performative or theatrical in the way it clearly is with Trump. And therefore, he's not authoritarian because he's not strong enough to be authoritarian. My personal view is that that is a fallacious argument, because, again, to your point about institutional stress tests, it's made clear that the American democratic system is vulnerable to an actual strongman. And the fact that we've been tested by an incompetent strongman is just dumb luck, you know, and that we can't say that it's not authoritarian if it doesn't succeed, because then you, you're in a position where you have to wait for, you know, despotism or the authoritarianism to win before you can identify it, which is just, it does not seem to be a very good diagnostic procedure. So we have to be able to identify incipient authoritarianism and to recognize it as a real danger and to say that the fact that Trump is incompetent at it is just the thing that might save us from it. And because he's lazy and because he can't actually be bothered to follow anything through. And because, as you say, he gets frustrated at not being able to just be king and swing his arm around and, you know, have fiat and make it so because he thinks, you know, this is what his power is supposed to mean. But the fact is, is he's been able to make a lot more things happen than we might might wish. What I think is really demonstrated, though, is how much the, the system of checks and balances in the U.S. depends on two major institutional setups. The first, of course, is the famous three branches of government, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. And the legislative is, of course, the two houses of Congress. Congress is supposed to act as a check on the president's power. And if the GOP under Mitch McConnell had, in my view, as an American citizen, not to mention as a, as a historian and cultural critic and everything, if McConnell had a shred of decency, I mean a shred of principle, which he does not, this GOP would have stopped him. I mean, it's worth reminding listeners who I'm sure know this, that when Nixon resigned, it was under pressure from his own party. It was when Republican senators went to Nixon and said, the game is up, you're out, that he had to go. So the fact is, is that Trump has not had the checks on his power that he ought to have had. And if the Congress had actually been doing its job and following the rule of law, and indeed following some of those norms that we were talking about at the beginning, then the institutions would have worked perfectly well. What we've discovered is that if two of the institutions go down, you're in a lot of trouble. And of course, that is one of the roadmaps to authoritarian takeovers of democracies that we've seen in the past and in other countries, that when the legislature caves to that strongman authoritarian is when the whole thing starts to go. And then the third stage is when the judiciary is no longer independent. And that's clearly what the GOP would like to have happen. And that's what they're trying to do. But I want to say there's another part of the checks and balances, which I may have mentioned in, in previous podcasts, and if I'm repeating myself, forgive me, but I think it's a really important point that gets overlooked. And there's a great irony to it, which makes it pleasing for those of us who, who enjoy historical irony, that the other institutional check that we don't talk about enough, in my view, is states' rights versus federal rights and state power, how much power is localized in the individual states. We've seen that in the handling of the pandemic. And it's going to become extremely important in the election. So when Trump beats his chest and shouts about how the election is going to be stolen and it's going to have to go to the courts, that's already trying to, to distort the proper electoral process and to get people to think that, um, that this is something that will get certified centrally. And if he doesn't accept the results, then it will go to the courts. The fact is, is that every state has a series of very strong 
legally required actions that involve certifying their own vote count that are overseen by lawyers and that are overseen by independent organizations. And so the electoral system is absolutely bound up in state power and in local state power. And that, I think, is the institutional check that has worked the best. It is the way in which states have had the power to take on Trump from the very beginning. You know, that it was Hawaii who sued him over the first migrant ban against Muslims when he first came into office, and California who sued him over the administration over its environmental policies, and the way that, you know, Cuomo was able to block him in New York over the handling of the pandemic, you know, and on and on and on. And we can catalog any number of examples. So I think that doesn't get talked about enough as one of the institutional checks on presidential power, but in the pragmatic terms that you're talking about and what power looks like in real terms in America, it's a really, really important part of it. So on that question about the sort of co-option of Congress, so it's not been any easier for Trump than it was for Obama or previous recent presidents to get laws passed. I mean, passing laws is difficult these days. I mean, the checks and balances of almost become roadblocks to that. This hasn't been a legislative revolution by any means. So are you talking here about the fact that his use of forms of executive authority would in the past have been challenged in Congress, whether over foreign affairs, whether over other kinds of executive edicts, and that the Congress has been silent, has waved these things through, has enabled them, or actually has been cheerleading for them? Because Mitch McConnell, he's, he's an enabler, He's not a cheerleader for Trump, I think. Well, no, but he doesn't need to be. And he can see that right now the power rests with Mitch McConnell. He's probably, in my view, he's probably the most powerful individual in the United States right now. In important ways, he is more powerful than Trump because he can pull the plug on Trump any moment that he wants to. And the moment that McConnell's not supporting Trump anymore, he will be impeached and removed. Like they could do it, you know, instantly. And I think, again, that's important for listeners to remember as well, is that impeachment's not a criminal threshold. And, you know, there's no double jeopardy. You can get impeached over and over and over again. The analogy I always use with it is that it's more like removing a CEO than it is like a criminal trial. You just have to have enough votes on the board to push the guy out. And um, McConnell has stopped that from happening. But everybody there knows that the moment that McConnell finds Trump to be a liability that he'll throw him under the bus. So McConnell doesn't have to cheerlead for Trump. He doesn't he doesn't need to be a trumpist. He's just pushing through his legislative agenda which has always been about packing the courts with conservative judges. Everybody knows it. He hasn't made any secret of it. That's what he wants to do. He wants to put across the socially conservative agenda. And in my view, his other objective is personal enrichment. He's like the richest man in in Congress as well, I believe. And that says a lot because a lot of people have gotten very wealthy in Congress. So I think those are pretty clearly McConnell's two aims. He wants to hang on to his own power and he wants to push through these judges. And then other kinds of legislative, you know, obviously overturning the Affordable Care Act is really important to them. And, you know, all the kinds of deregulation that they want to push through for their wealthy donors and for their corporate clients, you know, which is really what it amounts to. So it doesn't have to be a legislative revolution in your terms for an enormous amount of damage to be done to the country. But but what I was talking about specifically was the fact that, that Trump has been breaking laws in plain view. And as you say, I mean, he does on a daily basis things that anybody else would have been forced to resign over, and that if McConnell had any principle at all, um, that's what I'm saying he would have 
removed him over because he's doing, you know, to, to the point about institutions, Trump is doing damage to the democratic system. And the, it's not just norms that he's damaging on a daily basis. He is destroying the social contract. And that's what McConnell is helping him rip up, destroying the sense of a pluralist system destroying any belief that there should be a two-party system and, you know, the lovely British idea of the loyal opposition. They have absolutely taken a sledgehammer to that. They are literally demonizing Democrats and trying to delegitimize Democrats and seeking one-party power. And and that is, is, to me, far and away the most profound way in which they are seeking to damage the institutional norms of democracy. And indeed, as I say, the whole kind of basis of a consensual democratic society by denying more than half of your fellow citizens the right to exist, the right to citizenship, the right to vote, you know, seeking actively to disenfranchise people who will vote against them, which McConnell, you know, I mean, you'll remember this a couple of years ago when the Democrats said that election day ought to be a national holiday so that, you know, people wouldn't have to lose work in order to vote and that that should be a bipartisan democratic process, right? That just says we believe in voting in a democracy. We're not saying which party you should vote for. And therefore, we are just saying we're going to make Election Day a a national holiday. And McConnell said on the floor of Congress that that was a democratic power grab because everybody knew that more people would vote for Democrats. I mean, he literally came out and said it. So they are actively and incredibly dangerously working to undo the whole premise of a pluralist democracy, of a consensual democracy where everybody's vote is supposed to count and where you're supposed to vote for the leadership you believe in. And then the leadership is supposed to argue over how to get things done. What we are looking at is a very serious and very concerted power grab that the GOP under McConnell has been making for you know many years. I mean, one of the things I think is also worth remembering about what's happening now is that 10 years ago, when the Tea Party, the so-called Tea Party, was voted in, they said they wanted to destroy government. They were, you know, radical libertarians who said that they didn't believe in federal government and that the whole thing should be dismantled. And 10 years later, that's what we're looking at. So this is another way where I think I've framed this wrong, that it's not the Trump stress test in a way it's the McConnell stress test. I mean, Trump is an exceptional president. There is no, that really is no one like him in American history. There are bits of him and other presidents, but there's been nothing like this. And so we, we fixate on him and you know he, he hoovers up, he sucks up attention and oxygen while the real change is happening elsewhere. And if it's the case that the lasting legacy of a Trump presidency, however long it lasts, is in the judicial branch, people won't historically look back and think it created a Trumpian or Trumpish judiciary. They will be thinking during his presidency, with him almost as a sideshow, it created what you just described, the thing that the GOP has been looking for for decades, which is that kind of domination of various branches of of judicial government. And Trump, in that sense, he's the enabler. I mean, it's not that McConnell is the enabler of Trump. Trump is the enabler of McConnell. And we see this in the current Supreme Court fight. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And McConnell understands that better than anybody. So that's exactly why he's not cheerleading for Trump, because Trump is cheerleading for McConnell. Trump is there to deliver McConnell's agenda. Trump does understand that, certainly. He doesn't care whether Amy Coney Barrett's on the Supreme Court. You know, Trump has no investment in right-wing theocratic. I mean, you know, the guy's never read the Bible. He doesn't care. I mean, Michael Cohen has talked about the way that he, you know, that Trump laughs about them 
you know, off stage about these religious fanatics and these zealots and how crazy they are, but this is what they want. And so he gives it to them because that's the transaction and it is purely transactional and everybody understands it. So he gives them what they want in terms of social conservatism. And of course, Pence wants it. And that's why he took Pence. And we need to remember that he took Pence because the GOP went to him and said, if you take one of these right wing theocrats, then we will support you. And he recognized that that was what he needed, not to get the votes, but to get the congressional leadership behind him and to get the GOP, the um, Republican National Committee behind him, because that's where the power is right now. And that's, as I say, where their agenda is. So absolutely, it's that Trump is making McConnell's agenda possible. And he understands McConnell that the judiciary is central to that. I mean, we need to remember when we talk about SCOTUS. So what's been happening right now is that we're in the midst of a debate in the United States about so-called court packing because the Republicans have decided to clutch their pearls, as we say, because they are shocked, shocked to discover that people might change the size of the Supreme Court or might discuss such a thing. But Republicans have been packing the courts for decades. (laughs) It's not just Merrick Garland, which everybody remembers when McConnell refused, again, in violation of all norms and precedents to even allow Merrick Garland his hearing when he was a fully qualified nominee, which the president had absolutely, you know, President Obama had absolutely every right to do. And McConnell absolutely refused to even give him a hearing, as we all know, and he was holding that seat so that when they gained the presidency, he could shove a right-wing conservative into it. And now, of course, he's, he's in the position to have three Supreme Court justices in this one administration. But it's also true, you know, people have talked about the fact that they've blamed Ruth Bader Ginsburg for the fact that she didn't step down during Obama's presidency when he could have appointed a more liberal-leaning judge. And that, to me, is disregarding the fact that McConnell would have pulled a Merrick Garland at exactly that point as well. And he just would have had those two vacancies and he would have kept them. And they would have argued that there's a historical precedent for a smaller court, which indeed there is. And in fact, they were talking about it. I mean, in October 2016, when it looked like Hillary was going to win, what did they start talking about? They started talking about shrinking the court um, in case Clinton won. So they're perfectly prepared to expand or shrink the court at will, which they are empowered to do in order to block a president who they don't want to to work with, right? And that's the point, is that all of their efforts are obstructive against the Democrats, and it's about trying to grab power and consolidate it for the Republicans. And so, you know, there were over 100 federal judges that Obama had the right to sit, and McConnell refused. He just blocked them one after the other. And there were various things around the filibuster that are probably too technical for listeners, but that that basically it became an almighty fight between McConnell and Harry Reid, who was at that point the leader of the Democrats, and and this fight over whether you needed a majority or a supermajority to get federal and district judges seated. But basically what McConnell did was, in real terms, steal 100 district and federal judges that Obama had the right under the election. I mean, the American people voted him in, and that was one of the things he was supposed to be doing. And McConnell blocked them and uh, not one, but two Supreme Court positions that, again, should have come to Obama and didn't. The consequences of that are absolutely enormous. You know, certainly speaking as an American woman, I mean, that's the very first thing, right? So obviously Roe v. Wade is on the table now and the question of reproductive rights. But, you know, Amy Coney Barrett yesterday in the hearings refused to confirm that she wouldn't reconsider Brown v. Board of Education if if a state passed a segregation law again. So she refused to say that she would uphold the precedent 
of the Supreme Court decision that held that racial segregation in the schools is unconstitutional under the 14th and 15th Amendments. And she said that she would be prepared to revisit that if segregation were introduced by a state. When I say they're extreme right wing, I mean, we're talking about institutionalizing white supremacism again. And we're talking about institutionalizing a patriarchal theocracy. I mean, there was a great response to one of the things that um, Amy Coney Barrett said, because, you know, she she purports to be what they call an originalist, right, which is originalists are to the Constitution as fundamentalists are to the Bible. And they say that, you know, every word in it should be interpreted literally and that we can ascertain the intentions of the 18th century men, white men, most of whom were slaveholders, who framed it and that we should be in all times and in all ways seeking to fulfill their intentions, which we're somehow supposed to magically know through the Constitution. I say this with great sarcasm because as somebody who was trained as a literary critic and a literary historian, that relationship to language is nonsensical. And there was a, a great response I saw on, on social media where someone pointed out that under an originalist interpretation of the Constitution, Amy Coney Barrett could not be a judge or a lawyer, much less be eligible for the Supreme Court. So this whole originalism argument blows up in her face. And that's kind of where we are, is that people who are taking these extreme positions in regards to the ideas in the Constitution, the Constitution as a living document, democracy as an evolving compact. And as I use the phrase social contract, you know, for a reason earlier, and I'll keep coming back to it because it is a democratic social contract that the GOP is engaged in blowing up in every way that it can in order to cling on to power for a minority. And they recognize that they are a minority. That's to McConnell's point about saying the Democrats would win. And they recognize that they have to disenfranchise voters in terms of across racial and ethnic lines in order to hang on to power through a minority rule. And, and they have to engage in all kinds of disenfranchisements and irregularities and indeed illegalities. I mean, it is a, a federal crime to suppress the vote and they are actively engaged in suppressing the vote. So, you know, one of the first things that would need to happen if Biden and the Democrats get into power, as I said, is a strengthening of democratization. And, and really the first bit of that is electoral reform. I mean, it's absolutely crucial. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. On the packing of the Supreme Court, so I have two thoughts coming out of what you said. There are many things we could talk about here. On the packing of the Supreme Court, um, were Biden to do it, and he's been very careful or maybe deliberately provocative by saying he won't say until after the election. But were he to be doing it, do you think that there are risks that that simply entrenches this kind of zero-sum conception of democratic politics? That it is he's doing it because, as you say, the Republicans have been doing it for years. Is there anything to be said for trying to restore the norms by simply refusing to play that game? Well, there would be something to be said for it if we were playing a fair game, if people were playing by the rules. The problem is that, and I want to be really clear here um, for listeners, I am not somebody who thinks that all Republicans 
at all times in history were always my opponent or indeed my enemy. We're talking about a very specific makeup of this current Republican Party. But this current Republican Party is, I think they're unprincipled and I think they're spineless and they are doing you know, an immense amount of damage as a result. They do not play by the rules. They change the rules at will and they follow any technicality that they can. So anything that McConnell is technically allowed to do, he does. He would not hesitate to pack the court. I mean, that is what he's doing. After all, he's just doing it with nine justices because he can do it without having to expand the size of the court. So, I mean, he absolutely wouldn't hesitate. And so, you know, I I think a lot about Steve Bannon's line that um, Republicans go for the, or that, you know, his side, as he put it, they go for the head wound while Democrats are having a pillow fight. I think that is the contest that we're engaged in right now. Now, I absolutely take your point about escalation. We don't want to escalate the gunfight that we're in into, you know, a civil war, which is, in my view, not at all an unrealistic outcome of where we are. But at the same time, you can't also just roll over and play nice while people are stealing power left, right and center. So my personal feeling is that in order to redress the decades of imbalance that McConnell has been forcing through here, that it's absolutely what the Democrats should do. I think they should, my personal view, and I would support this platform unquestionably, I think the first thing that they should do is actually after, as I've said, kind of strengthening the democratic norms, which they should have ready to go and all kinds of electoral forms ready to go from day one. The next thing they should be doing is talking about statehood for Washington, D.C. and for Puerto Rico, which we can come back to. But that will shift the balance of power. That will make it basically impossible for the Republicans to keep eking out electoral college victories, although they are losing the popular vote. I mean, I believe I'm saying this off the top of my head, but I believe that Democrats have won the popular vote in six of the last seven elections, but they've only won two of the last elections because of the Electoral College. And if Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico were allowed to vote on statehood, we know D.C. wants it. Puerto Rico is a little bit more mixed. But you have a referendum, and if enough people vote for it, you put it through. That would permanently redress this imbalance. And what it would it would just mean that what we had was a system in which the person who got the most votes won, which you know is a democratic outcome. So it's not unbalanced in that sense. It's actually redressing something that is currently imbalanced and restoring balance to it. And I think the same thing would be true of expanding the court. The fact is, is that particularly with Barrett, if she is pushed through, she does not represent the majority of American opinion on these key issues. The vast majority of American voters are for some version of the Affordable Care Act. They are against racial segregation. They are against white supremacy. They are for reproductive rights, overwhelmingly. They are for gun reform. I mean, we're talking something between 60 and 80 percent of the American people on each of those issues are for those aspects. But McConnell's GOP is pushing a Supreme Court that is radically opposed to that agenda. So doing an end run around them and just expanding the size of the court to more accurately reflect the democratic makeup of the nation is, in my view, not escalation. As I say, it is just redressing an existing imbalance. But could you still not say that in a sense, therefore, these institutions have failed their stress test. If the only way to redress the balance is to carry on playing the game of the people who've been undermining the institutions, if you see what I mean, that you know, in a sense, we have crossed some kind of, I don't know what the phrase is here, not Rubicon, mm-hmm. but we've sort of passed <laughs> some threshold. Um, yeah. Because it, it has become much more 
zero sum. And and that is not, I mean, what's so interesting about what you've been saying is that we've barely mentioned Trump. And, you know, there is this argument that's currently going on that actually the Supreme Court has been a kind of check on Trump because John Roberts is very conscious that he doesn't want to be seen to be the Trump Supreme Court and he's conscious of the court's legacy and so on. But if it's the McConnell court, then the court being in some respects distance from Trump is a sideshow. But it does then mean, to go back to my the first part of this, it does then mean that the institution's genuine rebalancing and reform requires people to play the game of the people that you are saying have undone the institutions. There's yeah. a kind of paradox here. Well, I'm not sure it's a paradox. I mean, I think you're absolutely right, but I think there is a way through it which there might not be if it was a complete paradox, but it's certainly internally contradictory in the ways that you've that you've described. And I absolutely agree with you, and I too have been struggling for the right metaphor that we've crossed some kind of threshold. The system has been successfully corrupted to a great degree. And to use a different metaphor, I don't think there's any putting the genie back in the bottle. I don't think that Trumpism as a way of going about politics is going to go anywhere for the very simple reason that it's been successful. What worries me greatly is when we have somebody who's more disciplined and less incompetent than Trump following the same playbook. That's why we have to have this strengthening of democratic norms and very serious increasing limitations on democratic power. But I also think that what we have to do is figure out, and that's why I'm saying that what these kinds of reforms would do is simply make the American electoral system more reflective of the actual values, attitudes, beliefs, and choices, policy preferences of the majority of the American people. So it would be restoring us to some norm of democracy that would make it much harder to undo. So you wouldn't necessarily be in a state of constant escalation because once you've redressed the balance in that way, then one would hope that we have to hope that at that point you have enough people who are committed to the democratic process who will take it forward. I do think and I hope that the result of this will be that you know everybody around the world, not just American citizens, have had a real lesson in American civics over the last four years. Everybody's learning how all of this works and realizing that you can't just you know leave it up to your so-called leaders to trust them to do what is wise and right and best for the country and all of that stuff. So we're clearly going to have a more active citizenry. I think we're set to see the highest turnout in this election, you know, of my lifetime. I would be very surprised if we don't. And we are seeing an activist younger generation in particular. And I think that's really important. The 18-year-olds who are voting for the first time in this election, they are politicized. They are, I'm tempted to use a rude phrase, but I'll just use the social abbreviation, politicized AF. And they are ready to take charge of their political system. And so I think that what I hope we will see is a recommitment to some of those democratic norms, the realization, as I've written and said before, that democracy isn't something you achieve and then put on a shelf and admire and get on with everything else. Democracy is an absolute ongoing process, and it relies on any number of institutional and and national kind of supports and infrastructures, one of which is education. So another stress test or another institution that has not passed the stress test over the last four years is the American media, without any question. And clearly, we're all seeing around the world the effects of social media and how that's changing the political landscape. But um, in America in particular, education meets 
the media at the point of propaganda, at the point at which you have people uncritically taking in conspiracy theories. I mean, I, I read a, a statistic the other day that something like almost 40% of Fox viewers think that QAnon, which is, you know, one of these conspiracy theories like Pizzagate, and it's kind of related to Pizzagate, that's about the Democrats running a pedophile ring, that they believe it. And so you have people uncritically accepting lies and distortions and outright fictions and fantasies and delusions that are being fed to them routinely through Fox News, which has absolutely been the propaganda arm of the Trump administration and has made very little pretense at being anything else. I mean, it's had a few good moments, but for the most part, that's what it's done. And so all of those things need to get redressed. We need to have an engaged and educated citizenry that understands how democracy works and it recommits to the social contract. I mean, there was a, a great speech that went viral by a woman who's a, I found it afterwards, a screenwriter, which explains why she was so eloquent during the early days of the BLM protests in Portland this summer. And she was an African-American woman who was interviewed. And I think she was saying that she got this from The Daily Show. So we're all kind of repeating it from Trevor Noah. But she was saying the reason why the why riots and violence were happening was because it was very clear to African-Americans that the social contract had been shredded and that they were living up to their side of the bargain and that white America and the political leadership of America was not living up to its side of the bargain. And the police state in particular was not living up to its side of the bargain. And she said at that point, you know, all bets are off. The social contract has been burned up and you guys are the ones who burned it. So we're not abiding by it anymore. And I think that that's kind of what I'm suggesting the Democrats are going to have to do to a certain extent. We have to do that to fight back. And you have to play hardball with people who are absolutely, you know, not playing by any rules whatsoever. But you try to find that threshold where you don't go any lower than you absolutely have to go in order to to keep them from winning. And then you do the work of re-strengthening your democracy, of recommitting to education, of recommitting to political engagement, of recommitting to enfranchisement and electoral reform that will that will hopefully then buy people's trust back. This is all about the destruction of trust. And people don't trust these institutions for a reason. We can rebuild them, but that will take time. So, so to finish, let me, I want to ask you something that um, comes out of a piece that Ross Douthat wrote in the New York Times. So he, and to bring it a bit back to Trump, I like the fact actually we haven't been talking about Trump while talking about <laughs> it's a relief, Trump's isn't it? <laughs> I think that's good. But um, so he was making the case that Trump is not a dangerous authoritarian, that actually, not just that he's incompetent, but actually he's making the case that he has revealed some of the limitations of that approach to politics. And one of the things that he says is that liberalism is much stronger than it was four years ago. That wouldn't be true if Trump really were um, an authoritarian strongman. And it's not just that some institutions, including, I think he doesn't mention them, institutions of higher education have not been co-opted or subverted, but also mainstream media. And he says that, and so this is not going to be the point of view you've been pushing here, but he says that actually liberalism needs to show some humility if it's about to clean up win at the electoral level, because it has so many other advantages that it's gained over the last four years, including in the domain of public opinion. Actually, some of the things that you've been saying, I mean, there has been a strengthening and a deepening of some liberal and progressive perspectives, and that therefore there is a risk from his point of view, and he's a small c conservative and also Catholic writer, there is a risk that the playing field will be seriously tipped the other way, that actually there will be very few checks on liberalism in a world where liberals control the presidency and Congress. Mm. And I'm, you know, that's a, 
it's a uh, you know, give yeah. me a response. I'm not yeah, him, I but mean, I'm, I'm yeah, exactly, I'm exactly. I won't, exactly. I won't let you have it, recognizing that you're not him and you're playing devil's advocate. First of all, I think it's a bit rich that that a, a representative of a political point of view that has been entrenching itself in minority power. You know, McConnell literally laughed when he talked about the fact that he had unpacked the courts with conservative judges who did not represent mainstream American opinion. He laughed in people's faces. That's not humility. So I'm personally not going to take lessons from small C or big C conservatives in the humility that I ought to be showing after four years of watching this absolute catastrophe unfold and this assault on democracy. But I also think that his argument is fallacious. It's not just about the incompetency that we talked about before, but it's to that point about totalizing. To say that that because liberalism has been strengthened, Trump isn't an authoritarian is totally illogical. It doesn't follow. It just means that he hasn't successfully totalized authoritarianism in every branch of government and in every institution of American life. It means that, yes, we do have a deep democratic system. I mean, I I remember having a a conversation with Leslie Vinjamori, who's a political scientist at, I think she's at SOAS, and Chatham House. Um, She's also an American. Right before the election, the first election, in 2016, maybe anyway, just around it. And people were starting to talk about the deep state at that point. It was when that first conversation, you know, when that started to get popularized, that there was this deep state conspiracy against Trump. And she said, I don't think we have deep state. She said, I think we have a deep democracy. And I think she's right in that there are kind of capillaries, or as you would say, capillaries of democracy that have extended across three centuries through all kinds of institutions in American life, including our educational system. But that's not to say that this isn't an authoritarian regime. It's to say America is not yet an authoritarian state. And that is why he has to be removed. It has strengthened the voice of liberalism in outrage against him. But to say that you know authoritarianism has been good for liberalism is exactly the same argument that people like Susan Sarandon made when they said that it was good that Trump got in rather than Hillary because, you know, it would politicize people and it would make people, you know, more outraged and and they would rather have the worst in order to somehow what that will make everybody better because we've been through the worst. I mean, I think it, it, it was also assumed that it would mean it would be Bernie 2020. So it didn't work well, exactly, on that level either. Exactly. It didn't work on that. Even, exactly. Even as a strategy, it failed. But I mean, as an, as an argument, it's ridiculous. You know, we should face utter destruction in the hopes that that will strengthen us later. I mean, you know, the saying, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger doesn't mean you should try to get yourself killed in order to get stronger. You know, and that's what that's that logic true, is. Yeah. <laughs> it's also not true. Exactly. But that's the logic of this argument is we should seek authoritarianism in order to strengthen liberalism or we should be glad that we had this really damaging encounter with authoritarianism because it has strengthened calls for liberalism? No. What it means is that that the problem that Douthat and others like him face is that they are in a minority and they're trying to hang on to minoritarian arguments and claims to power. But at the end of the day, we're talking about, as I say, you know, a next generation of, of 18-year-olds voting for the first time who are overwhelmingly liberal. And that's just a fact. That's just something, you know, that is, from my point of view, as somebody who is liberal and pluralist and inclusive in all of my politics and my value systems, from my point of view, that's just history being on our side. And it's clear that, you know, the famous um, uh, Martin Luther King line about the moral arc of, of history bending toward justice, and then people have responded, but it doesn't do that unless you lean into it. But I think it also, it does bend toward democracy, because, you know, again, that's a 
that's a good genie out of the bottle that we can't put back in. Human rights and and democracy and the rule of law. People see that that is a successful way to run a society, that it creates prosperity and it creates security and it creates peace because you literally don't have people at each other's throats. And that's what I think we, we need to get back to. And the fact is, is that, that, you know, no democracy is perfect and no democracy is perfectly going to represent everybody's point of view. Yes, major, majoritarianism has its own dangers. And, and I agree with doubt that only insofar as it will not do our society any good for people to be gloating or for people to unlearn the lessons about not listening to other people's point of view. I mean, I think ultimately what we need to do here is to create a more inclusive society that is properly inclusive. And that means inclusive of small C conservatives and lots of other people with lots of other opinions. It does not mean putting fundamentalists in positions of power across the land in a in a country that's overwhelmingly liberal. And it's all about redressing all of those imbalances to me. So I'm going to ask you one last thing, and it's going to be very brief, and I don't want to increase your stress, your personal stress test here. But you mentioned, <laughs> Hillary, we're a few weeks out from the election. That There's an anxiety. I've heard it from lots of people. I'm sure you have too, that Biden seems heading for victory, and he's far ahead in national polling. But in some of the battleground states, it's tighter, and Trump, you know, he's back. The virus didn't see him off. And there's this sort of nagging feeling, is this 2016 again? I mean, in so many ways, it's different. And Biden is a very different candidate, and he's further ahead in some respects. But do you have any of those deja vu feelings? Of course. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think every, you know, everybody got rattled and for good reason. And I think there's been a lot of focus put on the polls, again, for good reason. I am persuaded, though, by some of the responses, indeed, that pollsters themselves have made about this, pointing out that, that in fact, Trump's victory was, was within the polling margin of error. And that in the three key states where in the upper Midwest, where he won, you know, this tiny fraction of votes, 77,000 votes that put him over the edge in the upper Midwest, that those places had not been properly polled by like high level polling systems in the run up to the election. So those issues have clearly been redressed. They've also weighted polling for education. And indeed, some of them are weighting it for education in a overlap in a Venn diagram with race, recognizing that those were drivers and that those reflect different kinds of electoral breakup and motivations around voting. So, and as you say, Biden leads by a lot more than Hillary led by. So I think we'll see, but I'm less worried about the problem of the so-called shy Trump voter. They seem to me a remarkably unshy group as a, you know, as a category. They're not timid about expressing their feelings about him or about anybody else. Indeed, you know, I don't see a lot of evidence that that's the case. And I think we're still in the moment that we were in in 2018. The polls were right in 2018. It was a democratic blue wave. You know, it took a while for that to be counted and recognized. What concerns me the most is that we need to get the message out right now that I think that the election is unlikely to be decided on November 3rd because we have such a high number of mail-in ballots this year because of the pandemic, obviously, and that those are going to take longer to be counted. And recognize that this is likely to be a drawn-out process, to not start panicking and thinking that that means the whole thing is falling apart, to make sure that um, we get the vote out as much as we can, and to make sure that the the vote is properly counted and properly tabulated and properly certified. And at that point, if Trump loses, he will get escorted out the door. And we shall see soon enough, even if it's not quite as quick as normal. 
We shall see. I can, um, I, can I just add, can I add one point? I know we're out of time, but I also think yeah. this is really important. In many ways, and we were saying that in many ways, McConnell is more important than Trump. Um, in many ways, in my view, taking the Senate is more important than taking the presidency for exactly that reason. Because even if Trump legitimately won the election, and the Democrats took back the Senate, we could just impeach and remove him for the crimes and misdemeanors he has committed while in office. If you want to hear um, the series that we did with Sarah on American history, including the history of impeachment, we will tweet that at tppodcast underscore, and it will also be in our show notes. We're going to come back to talking about Trump inevitably, but not just Trump as today, but what the last few years have meant for America and for democracy We'll be doing that with Helen Thompson. We've also got episodes coming up with Daniel Jurgen talking about oil and power and James O'Brien talking about everything. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Is that okay? I know it's too long. Sorry, I go long when I'm tired. And, and, uh... <laughs> That's good. No, it, was, it was passionate. <laughs> <laughs>